then once you do have that established artistry of your own, you sort of have the ironic flip side where it's like, no matter how much you may want to sound like artist X, Y, or Z, yeah, you are inescapably yourself, you know. <laughs> well, especially when you have such a unique voice, which you do. I was going to talk to you about that quickly. I, mean, I don't, I don't do intros with my podcast. I just start because I find it's just, yeah, yeah. just it's more natural for me, right? So, but because when I talk to musicians at first, I would be a little bit nervous about saying, oh, "I really like your voice," but then someone was saying, a musician friend was saying, you know, it's, well, it's no different really than saying, "I like the way you play guitar," or "I like the the way you play a ride cymbal," or whatever it might be, because your voice is still an instrument. And then, like I said, what I did was when, because we got connected by um, Mark Lindsay, um, who sort of said, well, you should speak to Matt. He's, he's covers a lot of Tom Petty. He's a great guy. And I said, awesome. So the first thing I did is I went away to, not YouTube, I went away to Apple Music, and I thought, well, I'm just going to listen first, because if I listen without seeing you or without seeing videos, those kinds of things, then I'm just listening to the music purely, right? And the first thing that rings out straight away is like, well, this guy's got a voice like nobody else. He doesn't sound like anyone else. So that straight away... I'm sure you're the same. Like, if the voice isn't right in the band, I'm not listening to the band. No matter yeah. how good the music is, if the voice isn't uh, there, totally. I was like, totally. I love this guy's voice. Can't wait to talk to him. So that was my starting point with your music. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, certainly what what you say about being able to go into listening or watching without without information would be such a such a wonderful way to experience <laughs> so many things. Like I, you know, I talk about how I'd love to be able to see a movie without knowing who the director is. Which yeah. is even more even more impossible, but but still, like to be able to be able to extricate yourself from expectation, it would be an amazing thing to be able to do. The only, I think the only place you can still do that a little bit is with books, and I did that. The last book I read is is called "If You If This Book Exists, You're in the Wrong Universe." So it's a really curious, <laughs> and the title goes like, "That sounds interesting." Read the synopsis and bought it on a whim, and so when you if you can do that, it's like. But with music, you don't really. I don't think you do that, right? Because I think we're all more selective about music as well. I'm going to pick a rock and roll album and I know that's good. And I know I like them. So I'll kind of stick with that and I'll, I won't sort of go too far outside my comfort zone. So I think like I said, books, you can do it a little bit with that. But Yeah. I, I think that music is so, um, it can fit into different parts of our day so much that it's yep. easier to, it, or if not easier, it's more important that we identify with it, that we can maybe see, a part of ourselves and the singer, especially, you know, maybe any band member, but especially the singer or see a part of them in ourselves. Whereas yeah. like a movie or a book, we engage with that for a more finite amount of time. And we can say, well, I like what, you know, this author was doing, but you, you aren't as concerned with saying this is part of me, I think. So on that then with music, and we'll talk about sort of a little bit of background where you grew up and what you were listening to early, I found I found that interesting though because there are definitely like Carol King's album Tapestry is a masterpiece. Like it is one of the best pop albums ever recorded. But I don't really listen to a lot of other Carol King because Tapestry is enough. So sometimes one album from an artist can be enough. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah, and I mean we're sort of greedy too. It's like <laughs> you you fall in love with the Tom Petty and they're you know, I know we'll get into this, but at least a, a dozen albums that I'd probably listen to wire to wire. Yeah. Um, so then when an artist, when I fatigue of them after one album, I'm like, well, they don't really have it. And it's like, no, like being able to make one great album is oh. a total feat, you know? <laughs> and, I, I, and, and then, 
part of it too is that the the streaming era has has made it a really different thing it almost doesn't matter if someone's made a great album our our attention i i know i'm not this is not a hot take but our attention spans are like well i liked the their number one song on spotify or apple music oh number two not really doing it for me but i'll yeah. I'll take number one and put it on my playlist so it's just so different yeah, and it's there was a a, a a classical pianist who I listened to calls James Rhodes, who's very good. He's kind of a rock and roll classical pianist, you know, smokes on stage and wears jeans and things. And he said that years and years ago, he went back and ripped all of his CDs to put them on his iPod when that came out, but then found that he was doing exactly that. He was just sort of creating playlists. So he said, well, I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to go back to CDs because then you find, you, you forget, oh, yeah, Rhino Skin is an amazing song. Or you know, all yeah. right now is an amazing song. And I've forgotten about that because I'm I'm listening to Running Down a Dream. Or yeah. to, so going back to listen to albums, which I've gone back to vinyl, even it's just so much better because you rediscover all these old songs you'd forgotten about. Yeah, and, and you give artists more of a chance too. I, I I'm afraid to say I don't I don't buy CDs too much anymore, but I I try to listen as though I'm listening to CDs because. Yeah. I think if you've bought it, even a, I've, you know, I bought a lot of used CDs and even if they're like $2, you still have that amount of investment in it. So yeah. you'll listen through the whole thing. And then even if it's not love at first listen, you'll listen through again and maybe it's track seven, you know, maybe it's Rhino skin, whatever. Yeah. Maybe it's that song that flips the switch and you're like, Oh my God, where has this been? Yeah. Where, whereas, you know, on, on Spotify, it's like, well, you're not digging it. You're not paying anything specifically for to listen to Echo, so why bother listening to through to track seven? Yeah, and then you never fall in love with an artist who could have meant something to you. So it's yeah, it's yeah. definitely a loss. I mean, I I don't I never want to sound like a an old guy <laughs> in my day, but you know it's different. It's different. Yeah, well, and it is it is important because when I talk to because I've got kids now and it's it's, it's not. <laughs> You know, it is the tendency to say, well, it was better in my day. Well, no, it wasn't better because the people before you would have said the same. It's just different. And so as a, yeah. a young artist or as a, as a new artist and an independent artist, you've got to navigate waters that Petty never even had to dream about, right? But okay, so you're in San Francisco. Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Correct. Is that where you, so you've born and raised there? Is that where you sort of spent most of your life for? Yeah. Uh, went, been away for college, spent a few other stints, especially early COVID and other places. But, uh, San Francisco through and through, basically. And what was sort of what was home like? What was the music like in uh, in your house when you were growing up? Um, very uh, very supportive for music. My mom especially um, encouraged me and my sister to play. Encouraged might be too light a word. She really, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, the, the carrot and the stick. I would say both were uh, both were put into play yeah. occasionally. Um, uh, but we we both played violin, classical violin. Okay. We're not rock not rock and roll uh, classical musicians. No jeans, no cigarettes <laughs> on stage. Uh, at least not as a five year old. Um, <laughs> uh, and then uh, yeah, th there was a lot of music in the house. A lot of music in the car. Yeah. In my mom's car, we always had a CCR greatest hits. We had a Hank Williams greatest hits. Um, my dad. I remember a Bob Marley greatest hits, um, uh, the Joshua Tree, which I sort of consider the album 
sort of, I mean, you know, this is simplification, but I, I think of it as the reason I play music, listening to the Joshua Tree. Um, okay. And uh, Stones, uh, I, th- I believe there was a, a Best of Sting solo CD, which was okay. uh, more questionable than the rest of those, but, you know, he he has his moments, his post-police <laughs> moments, that is. Sure does. <laughs> Um, so anyway, anyway, yeah, you know, a lot of music in the house. Um, I, uh, started taking an interest in guitar after really getting into rock music, um, especially U2 and the Stones. Um, as, you know, as makes sense, the guitar diverted my attention away from classical violin, uh, because, you know, night and day, right? Yeah. Uh, I think this was a little bit of a disappointment to my mom, much in the same way that I think she still wishes I was pursuing some kind of engineering instead of, uh, instead of music. Um, Sorry, mom. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, but ultimately they've been, they became super supportive. They drove me to two to three open mics every week uh, when I was in middle school and early high school before I could drive. And Really could not ask for better support from them. So those early gigs then, or, you know, open mics and things, is that just you, an acoustic guitar, doing sort of covers? Or were you sort of starting to write back then? Or It, it was actually great for – it started out very much covers. Uh, first few months were probably – there were Talking Heads, some Dylan, some Paul Simon. Uh, okay. American Girl was one of the first. Uh, but, yes, already by – a couple months in, I was writing, and it was, uh, it was great because I would try to have a new song for every week. You know, right. you, you come back. It was this uh, bookstore that was also a coffee house, little club, clubs the wrong word, performance space. Uh, yep. You know, I'd try to have something new every week. It was kind of the, the OG, come up with a new song for Instagram every week. It's like nah. Went there and wanted to have something new for the the folks nursing their chai lattes. You know, you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to rehash anything. <laughs> well, there's there's two things there. Right? I mean, one is the when you take that on, which you you could have just gone and done covers, like no one would have minded. I'm sure it would have been fine, right? But you then sort of build a discipline for the work, which is as important as creativity is. Is that sort of work ethic of being able to do that? And then the second is. You said that you got up on stage and you were doing Talking Heads. Like, yeah. which, what kid does Talking Heads with an acoustic guitar? Say? That's insane. What songs? Uh, well, they're the very first two songs I did ever in public. It was, it was supposed to be Psycho Killer and then Heaven, <laughs> which is the the first two songs on Stop Making Sense. Yeah. But I got there, and as you can probably uh, uh, deduce from my mention of the chai latte you can probably imagine i got there and saying <laughs> okay i don't know if psycho killer is the right lead off track here so i ended up doing heaven and then psycho killer um and, and you know doing talking heads with an acoustic guitar period is kind of a a bit of a fool's errand because they're such a, a not acoustic no guitar not band and, and they're not they're not really a, a chordal band you know a lot of their best known songs don't literally don't even have chord changes it's about the interplay of some couple dozen overdubs so yeah those two songs work better than others but uh but yeah i think uh 
I'm trying to think what the first Dylan songs I might have done, maybe uh, Blown in the Wind or Knocking yeah. on Heaven's Door. Those are more conventional choices. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're standards they're good for. They're, they're accessible for people listening with, with their child. I think, yeah. right? They're going to understand. I understand that. What is this yeah. psycho killer? Yeah. Why is this guessing? <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, well, yeah. let's jump in a little bit, a little bit forward there, because there's a link with Talking Heads in your career, a formative, very important link. You would discovered it will, it will, well, I don't like using that word, um, but Jerry Harrison from Talking Heads um, sort of noticed you and wanted to work with you. What was that experience like? Um, I, I, I don't think I've even quite processed it yet. And yeah. here we are going on. God, well, well over a decade later, and I, yeah. I still think I should probably be, you know, ecstatic about it. And I think it, I think it's sort of jarring that I know this person because I, as a kid, yeah. I we rented uh, "Stop Making Sense" from from the local video rental store. And just a a brief uh, interjection about physical media. Isn't yeah. it cool that you would go there and you'd see a a uh, a movie cover, a poster, and think like, "Wow, I wonder what that is." Let's try that. And that's again and something that's lost. Sometimes they wouldn't yeah. have it, so you'd have to go back the next week and see if it was there again, right? So, yeah. Totally, yeah. Oh, it's so, uh, and I, I miss the whole, the whole logistics of being done with dinner, and we'd yeah. be thrilled when our our folks would say, oh, "Let's walk down Video Droid." That was the name of the store, Video Droid. <laughs> Let's walk down, and it was a fifteen minute walk, and we'd pick something, and yeah. Uh, and you know, my mom was mortified when we wanted to watch the Simpsons, but she had never seen it. And then she ended up being kind of the biggest fan of it. But, um, anyway, so we, I, we got Stop Making Sense and, you know, it's a, a week long rental and we end up watching it every night of that yeah. week that we had it. It was just totally blown away. It's just such a, such an inventive and unparalleled brilliant interdisciplinary work of art i can't yeah. say enough about it but anyway obviously i knew what they looked like i'd watched these people on screen for you know 20 hours at this point yeah. uh, cumulatively between all those viewings and you know I, i'm sitting there in our hometown and jerry harrison walks by and for me it might as well have been tom cruise or something because i've yeah. watched more more Jerry Harrison screen time than Tom Cruise screen time. And uh, I was, I think in fifth grade at this time. And I would say just that um, working with him, the idea of working with him is still, it's still sort of surreal to me that I, he's someone I know and yeah. can text about something. So maybe I've, I've kind of, Maybe I've kind of suppressed how how incredible it is because to be a human yeah. being you have to suppress the insanity of life and that's part of the insanity for me. Yeah, um, like to, to be yeah to be able to text one of the guys who played on Remain in Light. That's just too big. That's too big for someone to, to have in their brain at one time. So, yeah. So, but when did he? So, what did he see you playing? Like, where did he see you play? That he thought I got to talk to this guy. Well, I, I probably just became a bit of a pest, you know, and he thought if you if you swat the swat the fly, it's better than letting it bug you forever. Because yeah. I, I just started seeing him around town and I was playing at open mics in in our hometown and I would play talking head songs and you know, maybe in a 
in a moment of poor judgment by him, he, he decided to reach out and ask if we could do some songs together. Um, and of course I said yes. And I went in maybe literally that week into a studio he had and we recorded um, we recorded demos of, of the 50 songs that I had. Um, and ju just me and acoustic guitar, you know, not, nothing yeah. polished beyond that. And then he, uh, he and his engineer, Eric Thorngren, they, uh, they chose 15 of those songs. And then we, um, we did full recordings of them. Uh, most, most of them are, are still unreleased. That's actually one of my oh, okay. sort of big, uh, my sort of bucket list always sounds kind of morbid, but one of my one of my goals is to revisit those. Probably re-sing the vocals because the existing vocals are very sort of Alvin and the Chipmunks, uh, <laughs> and uh, and and put out the full album as as yeah. we uh, we want it to be. Um, so anyway, that that's a a dream for hopefully the next the next couple of years. Right now he's not only promoting the re-release of Stop Making Sense, uh, the theatrical re-release, yep. uh, but also touring Remain in Light with Adrian Ballou, the the guitarist who appears on that record. Oh, I didn't um, know that. So and it's great. I've seen I've seen it twice, the tour. And it's you know, it's great. It's uh yeah. It's um you know, it, it's as good as you could see those songs without it being Talking Heads, I think. So yeah. he's, anyway, all of that is to say, I think he's pretty, pretty otherwise disposed right now, but I'm hoping in the new year and beyond, maybe we can be looking at, um, at revisiting those recordings. That's super cool, man. Yeah. So then your first album that you do release was Blast Off in 2015, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so that's, but I, if I'm reading right, you played with, one of the heartbreakers was that on that album no that that was on I the jerry think so. album. Oh, yeah, okay okay yeah yeah by blast off i was playing with my um my my own band uh the drummer yeah. which I, I still play with we're, we're playing tonight in fact um and that's been a very gratifying thing to have such a long-standing uh creative and personal connection with someone um uh, yeah, so Steve Ferroni was on that, and uh, it's, yeah, you know, as we were just saying, it's very surreal that I was working with Jerry. It, it might even be more surreal that I had Ferroni on a record. Yeah. I, I, so it's really good that at the time I was actually not yet a super fan. Yeah. I, I had already seen the Super Bowl halftime show, which is why I started becoming a fan. But I wasn't, you know, I we keep coming back to the song, but I wasn't, I wasn't a rhino skin level fan yet yeah. by any stretch. Um, so, and that's probably good because had I been in a room with Steve Ferroni at that level of fandom, I think it only could have negatively impacted sort of the earnestness and yeah. innocence, you know, it, it's sort of a weird word to use in connection to myself, but like there's, there's an innocence to the approach and into the songwriting, like, uh, innocence. What, um, what I'm really going for is lack, lack of self-consciousness. Like what, what a beautiful thing you, you could yeah. even connect it to what we were saying. Like 
can you watch a movie without knowing who the director is? You know, in the same way, like in your own creativity, can you take your ego out of it? And I think as you get older and older, that becomes more and more challenging. I think though that the, there are musicians who are really good at that. And Steve Ferroni is one of them, right? Cause I'm sure Steve Ferroni gets this call and says, Hey, do you want to come play drums on this, this kid's track? And Steve says, yeah, okay. And comes down and I'm sure had no ego about it contributed was great to work with you probably just 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 this big big happy guy behind the kit but that to me is sort of all the heartbreakers you get that sense that they care about the music it's not the the glitz and the glamour it's the music right so as long as there's that musical connection that they can find with you then that ego thing's probably going to get put out of the way pretty quickly i would imagine totally that i think uh that sort of self-effacing self-effacing nature is so central to the sort of ethos of that band and i've been lucky to play with a lot of people who who embody that um you know it's drama is so uh so stereotypical of a rock band and yeah there's just no place for it in (laughs) in a, a functional creative setting i did an interview with someone um sheldon dingwall who's a luthier makes world-class bass guitars here in the town that I live in, Saskatoon. And he said that he was talking to um, Ron Leland Sklar one time, the, you know, the, the uh-huh. famous bass player. And he said, yeah. if you got any, he said, if I'll give you one piece of advice as a musician, it's always be a good hang. Because that's how uh-huh. you get hired, right? Especially if you're a session musician, people want to work with you. If you're, an, if you're a dick and you're hard to work with, no one's going to call you again, right? So that idea, and again, I, like I said, I think, apart from one of the heartbreakers famously who, you know, cause a little bit of tension in the end yeah um, i think mostly they were pretty good you guys. know well i'd the i'd love to know more about that story you know it's yeah. one of the it's always you sort of know there's some of there's some event or some simmering thing but in the in the narrative it's ultimately yeah. sort of glossed over you know for sure yeah zane's book probably even... for the best Absolutely. And yeah. don't pick old wounds, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not the yeah. time to do it, but to be a fly on the wall in some of those conversations, when you've got personalities that strong, you think, Ooh, and you probably think, you know, Ron Blair's just sitting back thinking, nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, let's talk a little bit then, because, you know, going through when we, when I sort of got connected with you a couple, three weeks back, whatever it was, I of course then started listening to your music and blast off great great debut album but it's it's very sort of i think there's like almost this punk aesthetic in it was very rock and roll very guitar forward um then you move on to california's burning which sort of a continuation spirit catches you is the first time i think there's a few little bits of things now where he's starting to spread his wings a bit and get a bit better but then the album that i listened to first actually was undertold and there's a gap between spirit catches you and undertold of three years and obviously the pandemic happens in that time but I wanted to ask you, and I, I don't know if I'm on the mark with this, but it feels like something happened in your life in the intervening time because the tone on Undertold between that and Spirit Catches You, it's it's a bit darker. You're just sonically, you're in a different space, like you're incorporating a lot more synth in there. There's different elements coming in. So was there something that happened in that time that sort of was a, a trigger for that happening? Well, I, yeah, totally. I, I think the the main... I mean, there are, there are personal life events too, but I, and I could chalk it up to things, but if I'm being honest, I think it's really just was sort of conceiving of the production without the, uh, trying to find the, the most diplomatic word, but without sort of the, I don't know, albatross, maybe that's probably not the most diplomatic, but sort of the albatross of, of live performance. It's like all of a sudden, right. 
it's like okay we're not we're not worried about um oh i shouldn't use the the royal we i should say i was not worried about how am i going to perform these songs live like yeah. yes we'll reverse engineer them we'll say uh here's a song that we don't need to perform it like this we'll take it back we'll rearrange it so a power trio can do it yeah um but i no longer wanted to be constrained in the studio by um how something was performed on stage uh, already as you noted there's already a gap between california's burning and spirit catches you spirit yeah. catches you already you know expands from like sort of live band in the studio to like okay what sound are we going for yeah. uh, but it's still it's still like a band album with elements added but then as you noted like it goes from here to here for undertoad where it's like maybe it doesn't even sound like a band maybe it's not supposed to sound like a band um and um since you know things that had never appeared on stage with me before um it just you know it's sort of a cliche with you know george martin and the beatles but the the studio did become an instrument and that yeah. that's so exciting it uh you know it uh and and i i've shouted him out every time I've talked about this, but I have to do it again. Yeah. My friend and producer, James DePredo, who's just a, a phenomenal musician and may I say a great hang. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's, he's so responsible for that because I would go in and when I would take a, a song with my acoustic guitar and play it for my band, we would say, okay, how can we perform this? Whereas with him, I would play a song and he would say, how can we record this? Yeah. And then it would be, okay, is it best if it stays an acoustic song? Is it best if there's a, a string quartet? Is it best if there's no guitar on the entire track? Yeah. Um, so stuff like that. So that's a different, that's again, that's a different discipline thing, right? So, I mean, I always draw that parallel with Petty too, where by the time they get to Long After Dark, which is 41 years old today, amazingly. Oh, they, wow. They just knew how to make records wow. at that point, right? They knew what the studio was. They knew who they were in the studio and how to sort of, do different things like yeah you got lucky so now they're going to bring in sense and they're going to make something that sounds like nothing else so i think that having that freedom i think part of it is born by just having been in the studio right because you see those opportunities beyond just you know the, the power trio thing and a friend of mine always says that you know because he writes you know quite complex arrangements and he says what you basically end up doing in that situation is you write the song record it and then to do it live you do a cover version of it so you're covering your own song in a sense, right? So yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, and yeah, what you're saying about like understanding the studio, what you can do. I mean, that's such a like when I was recording with with Jerry, I this sounds so so naive, but I didn't realize you could make choices. Like I thought you just <laughs> went in and this is how it sounded because you're in a recording studio. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh no, you can can do anything you want yeah. for better or for worse you know i am a believer that constraints are actually the friend of creativity but of that's a that's another conversation yeah definitely and yeah. i should say i, I got them mixed up too so it was, it was kin, kintsugi is kintsugi is that how you pronounce it kintsugi? yeah that more or less yeah kintsugi yeah. that was that was the one that's a little bit darker where undertold it's just it's got a little bit more of a upbeat it's a bit quicker tempo overall i would say apart from you know you got one track in the middle but obviously were they written at the same time and sort of conceived as two halves of the same type of thing i'm not not so much you know i, I like to say they are because it's kind of fun like you know yeah. 
George Lucas says he knew about all six Star Wars <laughs> movies when he was making the first. <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, you know, uh, but no, it was really supposed to be one album. But then, then there were more songs and really made sense as one album. Uh-huh. And uh, to your point about them having stylistic differences, um, it became sort of fun to think like, okay, half of this is becoming sort of a little sleeker, like influenced by sort of 80s new wave thing. And then, yeah. so that's Undertoad. And then Kintsugi was a little, I would say more similar to the prior record. Um, more, more a broader sort of pop instrumentation, um, but still, you know, still conceivably performed as a band instead of like sort of an entire yeah. overhaul. But it's also like thematically, yeah, cut me down the middle, shape of fear enough bad luck save your sorrow hurt me now like lyrically that's it feels like it's a dark sort of or not maybe dark but plaintive and introspective as opposed to being a little bit more focused on that sort of melodic element maybe yeah i'd say that's true i i uh i did a uh uh uh, i guess sort of a series yes sort of a video podcast where my band performed three or four songs and then we did a then we talked with the the person filming it and and he said how he thought my lyrics sort of like just came to the edge of being personal, but sort of didn't um, yeah. didn't like dive into it. And, you know, you hate to hear people say anything, <laughs> constructive <laughs> criticism, yeah. uh, especially people related to you. My mom sends me texts when she has something to say <laughs> that are, you know, you have an iPhone and the texts are like three iPhone links. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> Let's, let's not talk about it. Uh, but he he said this, and it for some for whatever reason it broke through the the defense mechanisms of not listening to advice or criticism. Right. And I thought, you know, what? I think um, I, I think his name's Tom. Actually, coincidentally, like Tom, I think you're actually right. I haven't allowed myself to hit somewhere deeper. So I think for maybe that's what you're hearing on Kintsugi is me trying to push through whatever that membrane was and, uh, yeah. And, you know, sort of turn an eye in on myself, I guess. But cut me down the middle. You open with cut me down the middle. There's one thing that I was, I was kind of, I always obsess about, um, track listing and sequencing. You always seem to pick really good opening songs. Cause that one for me, that was the first song I listened to. That was the first song I threw oh, on. Cool. And so cut me down the middle, take whichever half you like. It's like, well, that's such a petty-esque line. Like, I'm in. This this guy, I like his voice. I love that line. I'm in. And then you get those big sort of Campbell-esque accents in the song that, okay, yeah, this guy's definitely a rock and roller. There's shades of other things in there, but he's definitely a rock and roller. So yeah. I, can, I can find where this is. And I get, you know, you've got like shades of the killers in there. And there's even like Cindy Lauper sometimes with some of the vocal phrasing. So there's cool. all these this, this mishmash, this blend of other people that I hear, right? And I always wonder whether I should say that to people. Oh, I hear this and I hear that because, you know, if someone's not a fan, that might be an insult. But again, it's just sort of, that's it's that sort of cumulative effect of just hearing everything that comes in and taking it either subconsciously or consciously. So, yeah, I, I've never. I'm, I'm trying to think if I've ever been had someone say I, I rem- you know, been compared to someone and really felt bad about it. I, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I, you know, I, I think it always comes from a nice place. Like it, yeah. it I have to take like a real sort of <laughs> misanthrope to come up to you and, and they exist, but like after a show and be like, you know who you remind me of? You, you remind me of, of Elton John and I hate Elton John, you know, it's like, 
okay, like, <laughs> yeah, shouldn't shouldn't you be writing political screeds on Facebook right now or something? <laughs> they probably um, are as well. They probably, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I I tend to think that if someone comes up with a comment like that, it's ninety nine times out of a hundred going to be a positive, at least coming from a good place, you know. Yeah, so. for sure. And then, sorry, I mean, your last album, White Rose in the Snow, again, you've taken that next step now. Where it almost feels like you've given yourself license to just go whatever direction you want. And you're going to use, because I mean, the opening track, again, is very electronic. And, and now, but so I was trying to think of the way I would describe your music to my listeners and people who are maybe not sort of up with a little bit more of the sort of the current pop aesthetic. And I'd written down somewhere that I think you've got, you, your skin is sort of that modern pop sensibility, but your skeleton and muscles are all firmly rock and roll. Because that underpins the attitude and the sort of structure of most of the songs. It's it's rock and roll. You can find where that is if you listen carefully and if you listen properly. So, oh, I, I may have to put that on my website. That that <laughs> seems like a, a that feels very right. Um, you know, I, I what I always say is that rock and roll is like the gravitational center. Like we we push at it. You know, we try to be. Yep you know, cartoonish, like a, the way that Wiley e. Coyote can like, you know, go beyond his skin and whatnot. But it is, as you say, it's absolutely the skeleton. And when I write a song, it's as though it's going to be a rock and roll song. We, we take it other places, but, and I, you know, I think, I, I think with the next record that we're mixing right now, it's, it is going to take a bit of a step back towards rock and roll. Okay. I think, I'm always curious how far we can push it, but I think some of the tracks on on White Roses were the maybe the logical extreme of of how much of a not rock song it could be, while still, right. you know, uh, genetically <laughs> being kind of a rock song. <laughs> yeah, you know, phenotypically, like we get, we get kind of weird, and I, I'd still love to push the envelope and not never settle, never settle because it seems like the easiest thing to do, but. Uh, a, a lyric I love uh, from, have you ever heard of Ted Leo? Do you know him at all? I, I don't. Uh, uh, regardless, he has a, a lyric that says, sometimes the path of least resistance will gain you the most. And and I, I think that's great. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's only uh, an exercise in futility to try to do the weird thing. Sometimes the, yeah. the simple thing is the right thing. But it's that same thing that, Tom always had, and you definitely have, is I believe what you're saying. It's not it's not a contrivance. It's not a, a deliberate sort of conceit to try to sound a certain way, to do a certain thing. It's just that that's the way you've written the song and that's the way you've decided that it should sound, but it comes across as being completely authentic. But I, don't, I did want to ask a song like Just an Echo then. So you said that you write, do you write all your songs on guitar? Do they all start out as sort of guitar songs or? Uh, almost exclusively. If, if I hit a real sort of impasse moving to another instrument is okay. can be a way to fight through but almost all guitar yeah okay cool okay well let's you know we've, we've chatted and this is the problem when i talk to musicians i could just talk to you about your work and then i forget oh no i've got to talk about tom petty so, yeah <laughs> so do you, what are your first memories of, of tom petty then he said that it's funny because there's another artist that I, I've, I've talked to jake thistle or i don't know if you're aware of who also I said am, that yeah the, the super bowl yeah. show for him he said that was the one where he sort of wow, who is this guy with this big stage thing? But as I think I'd written, you'd written somewhere too, he came out on the Super Bowl stage with that amazing prop stage, but then just played his songs. There was no razzmatazzle, no dancing girls. He wasn't doing, he was playing music and my God, it was powerful. Yeah. Oh, 
unbelievable. Like, I think at least this is how it looks on TV. I, I, we'll, we'll need to find the engineers, uh, but, <laughs> but it looks like it's two separate pieces. The, yeah. the flying V guitar and the heart. Right. And I'm they pretty sure, yeah. actually interlocked like in real time on, on stage. And then the people are flooding it. And, yeah. you know, I, I sound like a total zealot, but I guess I am the church of Tom. It's like hearing the opening chords ring out of American oh. girl. It's like, you have to be, you have to be without a heart, without a soul to, yeah. to not feel moved by that. I mean, it's, it's transcendent. It really it is. is. So I, I went and went and learned that song immediately to take to that open mic with the, the chai latte drinkers. And I, <laughs> I had to learn my first bar chord. I, I had to learn a B yeah. minor until then I'd only known, uh, open chords. Um, although this was not my first experience with Petty. I actually learned, uh, one of the first songs I ever learned on guitar. Uh, that is to say one of my first steps towards disappointing my, uh, my mother who was, (laughs) you know, still petitioning for classical violin, uh, was learning free fallen, which is, uh, an absurdly simple song on guitar, which I say with the, as the best thing you could say. Yeah. Simple is such, you know, a three chord song that is that good is that's the dream. Complexity is, is often the, the enemy of, of quality and in rock and roll and pop music. And it's one of the defining, you know, defining parts of Tom's brilliance is that he says so much, I, I don't mean, I don't even really want to say so much with so little because that, that's not I, quite what it is. I've said that but, on pretty much 50% of the episodes I've done so far, honestly. Yeah. I've used the exact yeah. phrase because it's, it's exactly right. Yeah, it, it's 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 so little, but it's so understated too. Yeah. Like it, it almost always makes the choice to, to, to say less. Uh, it, it, you almost yeah. have to infer the brilliance of it. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's almost sort of like, like I think of him as having this entire, like, sort of, you know, I, I used the word zealot sort of in jest earlier, but I do think of him as having this sort of like very Zen sort of ideology, but what's so great about it is like what he actually says, the, the hard, the concrete lyrics that we're able to point to, they're almost sort of just like the blueprint of this ideology. Like it it never is rammed down your throat. It's sort of like this beautiful architecture, but it allows the listener to sort of fill in the rooms and bring their own furniture. And and that's so beautiful, I think. Yeah. Well, I just saw the the last episode I just, well, the last song episode I put out last week was Learning to Fly. And that's an amazing example of what you've just said, right? Because there's online in the conversations with other listeners, there's at least three different rock solid sort of opinions about or interpretations of this is what this lyric means to me. And when you read that, you think, yeah, that makes total sense. And it's not what it means to me, but as a songwriter, that's the dream, right? To be able to write a song that totally. connects with people so completely because you've made it broad enough, yet specific enough in that weird way. And Tom was just, yeah, I think maybe the best of all time at that specific thing that he could do, you know? You just totally nailed my my songwriting sort of philosophy. Is like make it as specific as you can, without uh, without limiting who can relate to it. Um, and I I totally agree. I mean, I think you know it, it's like how what imagery can you use that 
brings something to mind, but doesn't, yeah, doesn't make it, you know, overly personal. I don't mean that in the way of like sharing too much. I mean, in the way of like, okay, only you experience that. I can't yeah. put myself in those shoes. And that's, that's usually a bad place to be, I think. Yeah. And he did it with learning to fly in one way where, you know, I'm learning to fly, we ain't got wings coming down is the hardest thing. It, it can be about tragedy. It can be about some people related to drugs. Some people relate it to stardom, which is kind of where I've always kind of landed with it. But then there's another way of writing that he did something like something big or Tweeter and the Monkey Man with Dylan, where you've got this, you've set up this soundstage and you've got the characters there and you've filled in just enough of the scenery that it's like, I think you were saying something about this, the same thing earlier, but, but now the listener fills in, does all the coloring in. So it's like a sketchbook where you've got to fill in and you've got, I'm going to throw again to one of your songs. There's a phenomenal line. And I can't remember which song it's in now, but the clown said to the doctor, I'm feeling a little blue. The doctor said, now, listen, man, I'll tell you what we'll do. That is so cinematic that straight away that line just goes, your mind just goes, whoa, where's this going? I want, I want to come along on this ride. So again, that, that talent to be able to do that is it's always, it always impresses me because I can't do it. <laughs> so. Well, thank you so much. I, I you, you brought a tweeter in the Monkey Man, which I think is is actually a great song to to investigate with connection to this because it's like it's a highly specific song, you know, yeah. as opposed to say learning to fly, which is I, I would have to look at the lyrics, but highly sort of metaphorical, you know, yeah. it's imagery, like it's it's beautiful imagery, but sort of in a you know, it's not there's not like sort of gritty specific images, which is sort of entirely what Tweeter is. Yeah. So in a way it's a great, you could say it's a great song that sort of contradicts what I was just saying. Um, but it, it does this thing, which I, I find is true in, in all the sort of great narrative rock songs that it sort of leaves just enough unsaid that you yeah. can listen to it again and again and still sort of wonder why you don't know the full story, like in a really good way. Like my favorite example of this would be Poncho and Lefty, the Towns Van Zandt song, yeah. where it's like, it's this brilliant outlaw song. And you kind of like know what happens without knowing what happens. Yeah. Um, and, and Tweeter and the Monkey Man, like just, it leaves just enough blank space that I never feel like, okay, this story yeah. again, you know? Well, because there's a whole so, whole subplot in it that Dylan just throws away, or Tom, whoever wrote that one line, long before he became a Jersey girl. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh -huh. We're throwing this away now? Is this, like, what are we saying here? Is this, is it like Lola from the Kings? Like, th that's a whole plot that we should be digging into, but it's just one line in the song, and it just adds that little bit of texture and that little bit of color that you don't need it in there, but it sure as hell adds a lot to it, so. Well, and, it, and it's true of movies, too. It's, you know, it's great when you can suggest, you know, I've, you, you can probably tell I'm a big Star Wars fan, but it's like, man, wasn't it great when when Darth Vader's past was hinted at? We didn't necessarily yeah. need three movies to tell us everything. <laughs> um, obviously, this yeah. is a bit of a <laughs> bit of mental gymnastics, but it, you know, it, it's true. It's like yeah. if you can if you can strongly suggest a background, a, a, a character, an origin story, Tweeter, the Monkey Man, whoever. Pancho, yeah. lefty without without having to spell it out that's that's great storytelling and uh and therefore great songwriting well it's why jaws was much much scarier before you saw the shark because once <laughs> totally. you see the shark it's like okay yeah i mean back in the time obviously the effects were much better than they they are now but 
But before then, that movie's terrifying because it's the suspense of it and the it's what's left unsaid. It's the whole jazz thing. It's the notes you don't play sometimes that are more important than the notes you play, right? So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You said that somewhere on one of it's either on one of your videos or in an interview I was listening to that you could make an argument. You could make an argument that Echo is Tom's best album. You said like you remember sort of derailing a, a co-writing session because you just started playing the title track. So what is it about Echo, do you think? that Why, why does that song resonate with, with Petty Heads, where Tom, as you said, sort of dismissed it, and it came at a very, very bad part, time in his life where it was difficult, that what was going on was difficult, but out of that hurt and that pain comes this unbelievable piece of work that is unheralded in the rock and roll canon, which I just amazes me because it's, it's a staggering piece of work. Yeah, I, you know, I being asked like what's my favorite petty record it's that's so tough you know i i know you didn't just ask that outright but i'm thinking of it in that context yeah and because the two that are always sort of like people's favorites well i guess the three it sort of seems like torpedoes wildflowers and full moon fever are kind of the three that are like you know you're you're rarely gonna not get one of those in yeah. the top three. Um, you know, I they're certainly wildflowers and torpedoes are some. They could be, they could be my favorite any day of the week. Especially side A of damn the torpedoes was like oh for God. probably about ten years. I thought side A of torpedoes was like the greatest thing ever. Yeah, um, and and it really kind of is. But uh, but I don't know somehow. I don't know what they were going for, but I think that somehow Echo, they tapped in to a sort of hybrid of the rock and roll that defined their first four albums with something that is as relevant to any rock music being made today. And I I mean, 2023 today. And maybe I, my understanding is that Rick Rubin didn't, totally produce echo you know he had totally done wildflowers and then i think he he sort of got them running on echo but didn't necessarily finish it with them so it might have been some confluence of like petty's rock and roll sensibility with rick rubin's very sort of like holistic approach to you know if you look at his discography it's all over the place yeah uh but then also with this like hyper uh intimate personal uh songwriting perspective of wildflowers it's sort of like all those things coming together and it's far from a perfect record but man it it does all the right things and it's it's best songs are totally up there with his best music no doubt about it well there's a reason why you know when people talk about their their favorite deep cuts or songs that non-tom petty fans don't know Room at the Top is always one of the first that you're going to throw onto any sort of playlist for people who are into Petty but don't know the deep cuts. Because it's just like, who who puts in that big rock and roll jagged guitar riff in the middle of this touching ballad? Well, Tom Petty and Mike Campbell do. That's, that's you know, that's the sort of stuff that they're, the sort of left turns that they're willing to take at this point. But it's also, as you said, I, th- I think Ruben, I think you're right. I think Ruben, my understanding is that he was there at the songwriting sessions and sort of help them, you know, hone what they were doing, but wasn't there for all the recording, I think. Okay. Is what I've, is what uh, I've read. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I was th- 
but it's part of the trilogy, right? Because there's two two main trilogies and then sort of the Jeff Lim as well. But you've got the Jimmy Iovine trilogy, Torpedoes Through Long After Dark. And then you get Rick Rubin doing Wildflowers, She's the One, and Echo. And those three, just sort of sonically and thematically, they, they fit, they dovetail so beautifully together that really you kind of have to have the same producer for those three records, right? So, Yeah, and She's the One is great. I, oh, I really I, believe that. It's, it's uh, like, it, you know, maybe scrubbing a couple tracks, but like, it would be a, it's a really good album. Yeah. You know, since there, since there's several covers and some sort of throwaway stuff, uh, it's easier to overlook. Plus, you know, Jennifer Aniston is on the cover of it. Um, so <laughs> you don't think of it the same way, but it's a great album. My God. Well, you know? and again, talk, talk about opening lines. Some days are diamonds, some days are rocks. I mean, beat that for an opening line yeah I, I don't know how you top that one that's just incredible and i saw i was <laughs> yeah. watching you playing the because you, you there's a um an acoustic cover of you doing that one and oh, what was the second song um square one on your youtube oh, yeah, channel yeah. which was fantastic because again that's where a truly truly great song if it's just one voice and one acoustic guitar you should still be able to, you should still be able to do it Right and walls. Absolutely, we're, yeah. we're going to talk about walls a little bit later, obviously. But <laughs> when you can just do it that stripped down acoustic version, it sounds great. And if you've got any sort of decent voice and you can play, it's a great song to play because, like you said, it's accessible and it's easy. And I think that that's what earlier on you were talking about. Tom wrote simply, and it goes back to I read in, and I think it was in conversations with Tom Petty by Paul Zolo, where he was talking about the Beatles, and everyone at that time said, "Well, I think we can do that." Like we can't do Steely Dan and we can't do you know these big massive complex arrangements or Chicago, but the the Beatles and and sort of the Stones, that's just four chords and the truth. I can do that, and so Tom never sort of lost that sense of let's let's strip out all the stuff we don't need, but definitely focus and keep on and make sure as what we do need is as as perfect as possible. Absolutely, and since you brought up Square One, I just want I do want to give Highway Companion a shout out because oh. it's it's an amazing album that will never get bandied about as being one of his great albums yeah it's it's sort of a low-key brilliant record but that's neither here nor there i i totally agree <laughs> i think i think he in a way i actually you know so one of the one of the very classic rock and roll questions is beatles or stones right we've we've all heard yeah. that and I, I think it's such a funny a funny question because they are totally apples and oranges yeah like they're just you know wildly different um and the way i like to describe it is that like what you were sort of just saying about if you have a half decent voice you can communicate a petty song yeah i feel the same way about about beatles songs like if you have if you have the sheet music for you know yesterday or whatever yeah if you if you can sing and play you're gonna know that yesterday is a great song I'm not saying it's going to sound angelic, but if you can sing on tune and have a sense of rhythm, you'll know that yesterday is great. Whereas the Stones, I do not think of that way. I think they have those songs. I would say Wild Horses, for example, is one of those yeah. songs. But I would say plenty of their great songs, their greatness is predicated on performance, not craft, um, which which is a false dichotomy, I would say. But still, like, you know, take Miss You or something yeah. like that. That's Mick being a brilliant performer, but not necessarily a brilliant writer, um, which is why like having a, a Stones cover band is sort of a scary, <laughs> uh, a scary proposition because it's like, I don't know. I don't really want to so see someone like 
pretend to be Mick for an hour and a half, you know, yeah. that that's like a, that's just a Halloween costume. Whereas you can, <laughs> you can pretend to be, you can pretend, pretend to be John or Paul without sort of being, you know, a clown, yeah. you know, but I, anyway, I, anyway to, Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. Well, I was just well, going to say, I, you brought up miss you. And like I said, I mean, if you played miss you just solo on acoustic, it would kind of suck. <laughs> Because you do yeah. need the bombast and you do need the performative element of it. That's what carries it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, you know, I don't, the thing about Tom is that I would say he actually, he, uh, you know, I think he comes down somewhere in the middle of those worlds. Yeah. Like I think his, you know, take square one, you could, all you need is the, the half decent sense of rhythm and singing voice to show how great a song that is. But I think he, I think he has a snarl that is maybe more snarled than John and Paul ever had, at least during their Beatles, uh, you know, their Beatles days. I'm trying to think what a good example of, um, of Tom being Stones-esque, at least in sort of vocal delivery. Um, Some of the stuff off Let Me Up has, a, has a, an element of that because it is that more bluesy jam based stuff so tom you know sings in that style because that's what the song needs and obviously they always serve the song first and foremost but i mean even like a song like you got lucky man like that's that's a it's, that's got a sneer in the vocal it's got attitude it sounds kind of nasty and mean um but he was such a gymnast with his voice too right like that's where totally, yeah. it pisses me off sometimes when people who don't know his work you know, thoroughly like he's as not one of the zealots um they think, oh yeah he's just he sounds a bit like dylan Sometimes he did, yeah, but man, like his voice on US 41 and his voice on All Right for Now and his voice on Free Fall, and that's three different people, that's three different personas. They don't sound anything alike if you really know music, right? So, totally. And his, his, uh, the precision of his range is, uh, you know, I, I understand the timbre comparison with Dylan, but yeah, the, the actual vocal approach is, is you know, leagues different than Dylan. Yeah. Um, you know, I, to me, the, the epitome of that is the title line of the waiting, like the, you know, the, that run down. It's like that, that is really hard to do. Oh, to yeah, 100%. He, he, you know, he just nails it. Yeah. A good <laughs> thing we always talk about with the heartbreak is especially just, they were so good technically. And Tom was a phenomenal technical singer. And he's never going to be in any of their lists of top 100 singers. But again, it's because, he didn't. He didn't have that crazy top end like Coverdale or or Plant or you know. He didn't have sort of the the weird sort of bibbidi bop bibbidi bop from David Lee Roth or whatever it might be. He always sort of fought sure. them. But every single note he ever sang was just dead on. And like I said, that oh, rundown, totally. the waiting. Exactly. Yeah. It's tough to do, man. <laughs> it's very, very tough. Tough to do that high too. That's a yeah. a high G. That's tough to hit. Period. Much less make part of part of that vocal right. <laughs> so as a guitarist then let's because we haven't talked about it as a guitarist you know again mike campbell every heartbreakers fan know is probably the most criminally underrated rock and roll guitarist maybe of all time because he wrote so many great lit riffs he always knew exactly what to play and never blew his own trumpet about it he never sort of got an ego about it he just sat in the background and just kept playing riff after riff after lick after lick after solo after solo for what 45 years yeah, I mean, my favorite, my favorite Campbell solos are the ones that are either one note throughout. Yeah. And I, there, I'm talking 
like the solos on the first side of damn the torpedoes are they're almost comical in how simple they are like yeah. the solo from century city is just yeah literally that hanging on that one that one sort of bend the entire time and it's almost you know if you're teaching like i, I teach some guitar and like okay if a kid brings in like eruption or something and i'm like you know that's fine but you know what's really good is this solo that's one <laughs> note the entire it, it's almost comical but it, those are great and then the solos and this is just true of of solos in general is when it just plays the vocal melody um and the solo in square one i think does that it's just yeah. the exact vocal melody and i think it's a slide solo and you know, yeah. this is this is a, another cliche, but good good solos are ones that you can hum, and there's nothing 100%. wrong with with playing the uh, with playing the vocal line. If you're serving yeah. the song, you only want to reinforce the vocal line. So, yeah, well, and that's, now and he, that's the, he's brilliant. And it's the thing with it, right? I mean, it's what they all did. They all serviced on because if you listen to Ben Montage. Ben Montench can play stride piano and jazz and boogie. We get the best of him. He can tear it up if you need him to. Mike Campbell can shred. I mean, running down a dream. That's again. I don't. I don't know why that's not getting talked about in the same conversation as Stairway and all these other great solos. Because for me, it is. But they don't need to do that. It's okay. Well, the song doesn't need that. I'm not going to play all over this. I'm going to sit and play these notes. I mean, how many how many songs does Ben Mont play? Just the first and fifth on the organ, and it's exactly what yeah. the song needs. And it adds that that tone and that color that the song needs because it's that thing of you know um with jeff lynn when he starts working with jeff lynn jeff lynn famously doesn't care about the band doesn't care about how they're going to play it on stage all he cares about is can we make this song as good as this song is a song as good as this song can be and when i was going back through full moon fever there is a lot of guitar on that album a ton of guitar you don't notice it if you're not listening with musician ears because it's mixed very well but there's like three acoustic guitars and an electric guitar and everything else but it all needs to come together and coalesce into being this coherent song and they were just brilliant to that as a band, all of them, every single one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I'd say maybe my favorite example of that is the chorus of Here Comes My Girl. There, It's just like this absolute explosion, obviously exacerbated by, you know, Tom going from sort of the, the preacher spoken yeah. word build up to the melodic chorus. But that chorus comes through and it's probably about 5 billion to the power of 10 different guitars and pianos and stuff. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it is totally uh, elimination of ego for so many things to be happening. Yep. And it's just brilliant musicianship and it's brilliant production. I mean, I'm sure yeah. Jimmy Iovine is, has to be credited with so much of how that's tucked in and yep. not stepping on toes. And, you know, it's, greater than the sum of its parts and there are a lot of parts <laughs> yeah but that's i think always I've, I've made this observation before that tom was very very good and i think mike as well I, i'm sorry to say tom but i think tom and mike particularly they were very good about learning from jimmy iovine from you know working on um with rick rubin working with jeff lynn they took what they needed from each of those different approaches that these different producers had and brought them in and sort of used them when they needed them and dropped them when they didn't and of course then you get on to you know, Mojo, where they're going to go now, they're going to go and re uh, uh, record an album live off the floor in their clubhouse, just in their little practice space with Ryan Oliati, who's not like a big Hollywood producer. And yet they still come out with this amazing sound and this amazing album. So that that whole 
I said that whole, like I said, that whole discipline and craft of learning and evolving as a studio musician and a live musician, because they are mass, two massively different things. I think it's always that thing of it shows that this was a band that was serious about music. They weren't, you know, they weren't Kiss. They weren't a marketing machine. They weren't Van Halen. They weren't just there for a good time all the time, you know. And I love Van Halen. I'm not dissing Van Halen. And I'll get in trouble if Corey Morissette's listening to this by doing that. But, um, <laughs> but it's it's that thing of, you know, no girls on the bus was the rule for the Heartbreakers for the first, I don't know, 20 years of their 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 life as a band because the music came first with Tom. Like, he was very, very serious about it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, no, I, I, I think Tom doesn't get enough credit for how much he draws from the different uh period the different chapters of his career i think that um there are artists where that's sort of intrinsic to our understanding of them yeah bowie bowie easily probably being the the most yeah. sort of revered for that but i'd say dylan we think of that as well you know from folk singer to electric at newport folk to yeah. born again christian yada yada yeah. yada um uh so I, I think tom is sort of um he we do him a disservice by not recognizing the different eras um maybe they're not quite as different as say the bowie eras right but i think cu culturally we still oversimplify who he is uh whereas i but if you like really took someone's hand and guided them from uh you know from breakdown to refugee yeah. to uh don't come around here no more to uh you know zombie zoo <laughs> no to free phone <laughs> to wild to wildflowers you, you would hear all these different things yeah. i mean maybe you have to have a little bit more of a musician's ear but some of those are pretty big differences and they're just not it's just not part of the popular narrative about yeah. Tom Petty that he has all these phases when he really does. Yeah. Well, I wonder with that sometimes too, because I, th I think maybe because he was never, he was never extreme in any direction, in any part of his life. Like he never did anything crazy on stage. He never, he wasn't a headline grabber. So I think that maybe he just wasn't taken as seriously as, I don't know, like someone like Springsteen maybe. And some, um, someone made it, I can't remember who it was now, was talking about, made a good point that, you know, Tom Petty sort of, owned California in terms of record sales. Like he was much bigger than Springsteen was in California where Springsteen was much bigger in the whole sort of, you know, Northeastern seaboard, but there's a lot more people there buying records and there's yeah. a lot more radio stations. There's a lot more, you know what I mean? So, so I think that, I think that he sort of gets almost not forgotten, but he doesn't get put on that same level with those guys just because people aren't as they're not listening. They're not paying attention to what he's doing, you know? Yeah. I, you know, it's funny to put it that way, but and, you know, it's funny to talk about Springsteen and Tom in one in a conversation because they're they're so similar in so many sort of like on paper ways, yeah. like sort of a bit of a like populist personality with a lot of profundity to be drawn from like a fairly simple pre uh, presentation. Yeah. And yet I, you know, I, I, I think Bruce is great, but. I've never loved him unconditionally, whereas I feel like I love Tom unconditionally. And I, I don't, I couldn't tell you exactly why this is. There's some, yeah. there's some intangible to it, but I think it connects to what I said earlier about how music, we need to identify with it in a way that we don't necessarily need to with books or movies. Yeah. Um, and somehow I just, 
I want to be like Tom. Uh, I want to learn from Bruce, but I don't really want to be like Bruce. Um, <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And I understand completely what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's just that Tom, I think maybe always held on to some underdog energy. Yeah. Uh, scrapping it out. Whereas Bruce is more the center of attention at times. So I don't, I guess I just relate more to yeah. Tom's thing. Bruce, well, Bruce has countless brilliant songs. So that's not any, not course, the yeah. slightest denigration of him. But, but even, and I've talked to other people about this again, that I think where Petty sort of edges it for most of his contemporaries in that sort of, you know, older rock star is a rock performer is that his late catalog didn't taper. You know what I mean? He didn't, he didn't sort of totally. just start phoning it in because the last DJ, Mojo, Hypnotic Eye, as your last three albums, dear God, I mean, most people would love that as the only three albums they ever wrote because all three of those albums are phenomenal in different ways and totally unique and totally different. But Hypnotic Eye, that's not the work of someone who's on the downswing at all, you know? Oh, yeah. It makes his, makes his passing that much more crushing. You know, yeah. I, I, I think that our... our as a as a society, our uh, how we respond to celebrity death is very weird, um, but I think it's very vindicated in in the sense that he had so much more to give. Yeah, you know, it's it's crushing that those are each song that he could have written is is a yeah. death. You know. Okay, well, awesome. So let's um, wrap things up by uh, letting people know what you're up to, where they can find you, what's coming. You got a new album coming out. And yeah, when's that coming out? Um, I believe we are going to start putting out singles towards the end of this year, uh, December, hopefully. Okay. Um, it's uh, you know, once again, trying to trying to think of the songs as how can we best do the songs, and then think about music uh, about the stage, reverse engineer, almost covering your own music, as you said yep. earlier. Um, so that's happening. Uh. Lots of local gigs, also working on some touring of California, hoping to tour much, much more broadly than that in the near future, though that's a bit, a bit more of a question mark currently. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's all online, you know, it's, uh, please reach out. It's wonderful to interact with people online. I wish that I saw people at the merch table more, but yeah. My God, it's it's some it's uh, self defeating to not embrace the the contemporary modes of communication. So it, it's wonderful to connect online. Yeah, well, we got and the other thing you got to do, dude, is like CDs. I mean, I've got I've got to buy a couple of CDs from the website, but I'm a vinyl hound. I just got my red vinyl reissue of Mojo. You got to get some of these albums on. on vinyl okay, for us, for us all guys. Yeah, <laughs> I would like to. I need. I think I need a critical mass of of prospective vinyl uh, <laughs> buyers before I can make the leap. But I, I would like to, I would yeah. like to. <laughs> um, and I would say to, to my listeners, yeah, go, go check out my, you, you must be on social media, I'm assuming all over the yeah, yeah. the regular platforms and then go to Matt's yeah. website. If you're looking for a way in and I'm going to share one of the songs that I'm going to share for the, I think the Tom Petty faithful. And if you want to sort of get into Matt's music, I thought meet me at midnight was one that I thought, can you've talked about side one of, of uh, torpedoes that song to me sonically kind of fits with some of the songs on that yeah, side. And I cool. think that'll be an easy way in for people to get into your music. So I'm going to share some yeah. of that stuff. Awesome. Um, Matt, thanks so Great. much for taking time out. It's been oh, wonderful thank to you. Me. And I'm considering, consider me a fan now. Like I, like I said, I, I found my way into your music really, really quickly because I could find lots of little connections to music that I already love. 
Um, and I'm interested to see where you take it and whether what the new album sounds like. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for thanks for having me on. And yes, hopefully we meet in person down in Gainesville. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>